we will get started with module 7 session 1 thank you father for this lord's day how glorious it is that every week we get to have a little taste of heaven we fellowship with the people of god with whom we will spend eternity we feast on the treasures and the the, the glories and the delights in the word of god and the never ending truths the endless mines of, of gold and silver and precious jewels that thrill our soul and make us to know our God better. And Lord, as we begin this final module in Bible Training Institute, the Bible study methods, I pray, Lord, that for all who are hearing this, that this would be um, motivation and training and a help for them to get even more out of the Word of God in their own personal time and to be effective, Lord, to proclaim the Word of God to others who need to hear. I pray that you would bless our time this morning. More importantly, we pray you would bless this entire Lord's Day, that Christ would be exalted, lifted up, glorified, and honored, and that our glorious Savior would receive all that is due to His name today from our hearts, from our lips as we sing, and from our minds as we learn. We pray, Lord, for this time of getting our Lord's Day started. It would be useful to us and pleasing to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll just go ahead and call this module session, module seven, session one, part one, just to get us started uh, this morning. So this is the how to study the Bible and kind of an introduction to Bible study methods. Uh Theoretically, and uh, Jay Street is not here today. He is—it's his turn to preach in our uh, our church revitalization in Tehachapi. So he's preaching this morning, um, and he usually preaches for like an hour and a half. You think I go long? He's uh, he he takes it. So uh, we're excited for that. If if he hasn't done so already, he will uh, grant access. This module is different than all the others. I'm going to give you all the notes exactly as I'm using them um, because there's so much deal, detail here. It's it's easier for you to grasp it. I think it's good for you to take notes if you want to, but you will get exactly the same outline I'm working from. Um, and it's a little bit unedited at times, so if you see spelling mistakes, don't send me an email. I know they're there um, already. Um, so uh, has he has he sent that out or provided a link yet? No? Okay. Well, that's all right. We're, um, we'll work on that this week, and feel free to, to ask him about it. Um, I think we're still figuring out how he's going to do that. Um, and, and so everything we're doing today will be on there, and this is not super mind, you know, mind-boggling today. Um, so just a few introductory things before we kind of start to get into just introducing Bible study methods. Um, first of all, it's interesting that we're doing this right now because one of the things that um, I, I met with kind of a focus group for uh, women's ministry a number of months ago just to kind of determine what are the things that we need to really focus on as far as teaching and, and upcoming events and women's retreats and so forth. And one of them that came out was uh, a, a desire to do an entire retreat on how to study the Bible. And so I sort of took that and what's going to happen at this year's women's retreat, um, and I don't know if this is public news yet or not, but we're basically going to do the same thing at men's retreat, just a little more masculinified. Um, if, you, if the men saw the titles of the messages we're doing at women's retreat, you wouldn't come to men's retreat. So it's, uh, so, um, but, but the difference will be, if you're wondering, well, why should I do both? 
what we're doing here in in the how to study the Bible part of BTI is a little more academic. It's a little more um, with the with the primary goal of getting you to the point where you can study a passage of scripture and communicate it to someone else, uh, whether it's to one person or whether it's to a, a small group Bible study or a, a women's group, whatever. Um, so that's that's the focus here. At the women's retreat and and the men's retreat later in the spring, um, the focus is a little bit more devotional. And what I mean by that is we're going to go through some of the same methodology, um, but much more uh, in the sense of how do I take the Word of God and weave it into my own heart at such a level that my life changes. And while that will happen here as well uh, in the BTI portion, um, that's not quite so much the focus. Uh, if you study the Bible and your life doesn't change, I don't know what to tell you. That's, that's almost impossible unless you're not a believer. Um, but the, the retreats is going to be much more devotional in that the intention behind whatever study you do is to then take your study and to, to just absolutely imprint it on your mind um, through what we call biblical meditation. And I know, I know that pagans have stolen the word meditation. We're going to take it back because it's a biblical word first. And meditation is so important that you learn something and then you chew on it for a while. And you, you think about it and you... Um, make notes about it far beyond just a, an academic study. So the two will feel very different. They'll, they'll have some overlap in content, but they will have a different feel um, at the, the retreats. We're just going to, I'm going to preach through an entire psalm and we're going to do all the methods as we go. So it'll be a little bit unique. So I, I'm saying all that to say that don't think that by coming here you're getting everything you're getting at the retreat. It will be different, and uh, it'll be it'll have much more of a, a personal devotional focus. Like I said, for this um, particular module, I'm going to take we're going to take our time. I don't mind taking extra time on this. There's there's ten sessions theoretically, um, so we already are stretched out to at least eleven. But I, I don't know when you'll get to do this um, in your lifetime, and. I also uh, think it's important to to take your time with this. Um, A number of years ago, somebody um, asked if they could meet with me for an hour, which is unusual. People don't usually say they want an exact amount of time. And I said, great. Uh, What what do you want to talk about in that hour? Well, I'd like you to teach me how to study the Bible. I kind of thought, okay, that's fine. I understand that. But I've spent eight years in graduate school learning to study the Bible. And I, I don't feel like I've got it down yet. I'm, I'm reading. I'm, I, I don't just read about the Bible. I read about how to study the Bible every year. I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn and grow. And so I, I would say this. It is a process that you need to start and one that never ends and one that you'll continue to get better at. Um, but there is no secret magic pastor book that has sermons pre-done. Uh, if, well, there are. That's called plagiarism. Um, you can do a search on that. Um, but it's important that the Word of God be sifted through your own heart, through your own mind. And that's why trying to find shortcuts, um, it, it, it's kind of like the Bible study version of steroids. It, it might look good for a while, but it's going to crash and burn eventually. Um, I, I have a, an acquaintance um, who uh, I've known him, met him a couple of times, and he was just removed from his pulpit because his elders found out that he was downloading sermons and had been doing it for several years. 
Um, they used the excuse that he had too much, too many other duties in the ministry that you know he was doing counseling and this and that and this and that. Well, the problem with that is that that when you read the the outcome of somebody else's encounter with God and His Word, then that does nothing for you personally. So that's why, see this as a process. Don't don't think you're going to get to the end of this and be uh, proficient and ready to go. Um, you will always be learning, always be growing. Uh, probably at least half of the reason for doing this is to at least teach you some things not to do. Um, bad Bible study methods are almost worse than none uh, because they... They are become the basis for uh, reading your theology into the Word of God. They become the basis for uh, what we call proof texting, taking a belief that you want to prove from Scripture. Um, for example, I could show you in over 40 places in the Bible, uh, if I proof texted, I could prove that God hates dogs um, because of how negatively dogs are spoken of in the Bible. Well... You can proof text anything in scripture, right? Uh, I remember an environmentalist uh, having a a shirt, uh, a sweatshirt, quoting the book of Revelation that says, Do not harm the trees, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. And I got to talk to that person. I opened my Bible and I said, Can I show you the rest of the context? Because it goes on until this happens and then everything goes, right? And that was a little bit changing. So uh, I just said, just add one more word, until. So bad Bible study methods are almost worse than not studying at all. So uh, that's part of my goal is to help you avoid those. So the basis for everything, of course, in this, our, our kind of key verse is 2 Timothy 3.16. That all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's our, that, that is the basis for uh, really everything here. Uh, the man of God, that's a technical term in both the Old and New Testament for the one given the charge of teaching the scriptures to God's people. And that's inspiring to me because that means that there is not a single verse in the Bible that's off limits. There's not one that I need to skip. There's not one I need to be scared of. They're all teachable. And there, there are some hard ones, but I go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. And so that's, that's our starting point. So we're going to start really, really broadly here, do a few broad concepts today, and then, and then we'll dive in a little bit in more detail uh, next week. So let's talk about the word hermeneutics, first of all. And the old joke is, Herman who? You don't know who that is. Um, hermeneutics is the methodology of interpretation, particularly of the scriptures. This is just one of those words I, I was taught by one younger professor in seminary. Um, don't use big words with your congregation. They don't know them. And I raised my hand having already pastored for 12 or 13 years. And I just asked, well, how about if you teach them? You know, and it's like, well, okay, I guess that's a good idea. So this is one of those words to learn. Um, learn the word hermeneutics. You'll hear it in sermons, and my hope and expectation is that the vocabulary, the theological vocabulary of all of us at Grace grows and elevates over time. Um, that's, that, that's important. So hermeneutics is from the Greek word hermeneuo. It just means to translate or to interpret, to um, give the sense of something. 
That is what hermeneutics is, and so we'll continue to use that word. Um, hermeneutics is very difficult to spell. I admit, I still have to use spell check to figure out whether the E comes first or the U in the udix part. So uh, that's fine. We have good tools. So what's the purpose of what we're doing here and how to study the Bible? I, my, my purpose is to give all of you who don't have training in original languages, who don't have training in um, kind of higher level hermeneutics and, and Bible study methods, I just want you to have enough tools to be able to open the Bible and dig much more deeply than you could by simply doing a a Bible reading program, which is good also. But um, to be able to take one verse and spend weeks on one verse and just mine the depths, um, to have a pickaxe and figure out where the the vein of gold is and to go for it in that way. So that's, that's the purpose. What we have to start with, and we'll spend a bit of time on this, even though it's just one slide, I'm going to take some time on this. These are our starting assumptions. Um, another word for that is presuppositions. Um, they're, they're not things we just made up. These, this is where we start. If you don't start here, then the Bible gets twisted in your, in your mind. Um, you become uh, a United Methodist, a United Methodist minister across the board. Uh, pretty much the United Methodism, by the way, is, is a lost cause. So they're, they pray for them to either shut down or get saved. Um, but the United Methodist view of Scripture is that it is a collection of man's view of God, some of which is more useful than others. So, okay, so what do you do with that? You know, my first question is, okay, the part you're reading, how do I know that that's from God or from man? You know, how do I know this? So you must start with these assumptions, otherwise your, your view of Scripture um, is twisted and, and wrong. And so we start with an incredibly high view of Scripture, and that begins with the doctrine of inspiration. I just read this verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, that the scriptures are God-breathed. It's, it's literally, theopneustos, uh, it's the Greek word that means breathed out by God. And most, most English translations use a different word, inspired, um, and thus we have the doctrine of inspiration. That's technically not the very best word. We, we, we would almost be better to call it the doctrine of expiration, right? But that doesn't make sense to anybody. The the doctrine of breathing out. Um, When we say inspiration, what do we mean by that? That doesn't mean that um, the Apostle Paul uh, saw a beautiful sunset and got inspired and wrote Galatians. Not that sort of inspiration, not emotional inspiration. It it has to do with, with the very breath of God being breathed into words. And so that's a that's a huge in, uh, place to start. And I didn't give you some other references, but let me give you a couple, and you can write these down if you're interested. Um, and they're they're in the notes. First uh, Thessalonians two thirteen. All of First Corinthians one and two uh, is just just huge for inspiration. First Peter one ten and several verses after, and then Second Peter one nineteen through twenty one. Basically, what what does inspiration mean? And I want to be, I want to be as, as precise as we can. The writers were not inspired. The writings are inspired. Does that make sense? So we want to be very clear about that. Um, the Apostle Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth that we know of. How many of them are in the Bible? Two. So how many of them were inspired? Two. How many of them were really good? Four. But they weren't inspired. 
and you need never worry that the apostles may have written something that we that we find out later is the 67th book of the Bible. We don't have to worry about that. But God, this is a great word, superintended the men whose writings then were inspired. He superintended them. The Holy Spirit overcame them, overwhelmed them. Um, There's a big debate as to whether uh, men knew they were writing Scripture or not. That depends on which passage you're looking at. Uh, Jeremiah received a direct word from the Lord and was told, write these things down. Pretty clear there. Uh, When Moses gets the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, pretty obvious at that point. Um, But the apostles did lots of writing, not all of which was inspired. And in in other times we've talked about bibliology and how we came to the Bible we have now is a very, very good process and one that is is very confidence-building. But we could divide inspiration into two smaller parts. And that's not on here. I apologize for that. Um, Plenary inspiration. P-L-E-N-A-R-Y. Plenary inspiration means that inspiration extends to all the parts of the Bible alike. That there are no verses more inspired than others. The, The whole thing is inspired. And, and so that's kind of the big picture. Everything is inspired. The other word we could use is verbal inspiration. Verbal inspiration means that the actual language form of the, the writings of the Bible are inspired. The actual, um, Jesus put it this way, every jot and tittle or every dot and stroke, depending on the English translation. And that's actually, he's referring to Hebrew and Greek. In, in Greek, there's a little dot that makes a difference in whether you say ah or oh. And, and that changes the meaning of the word. In Hebrew, there's a, there's a, a or in Greek rather, there's a little tiny mark uh, that indicates the function of a word grammatically it also um, it also is a letter in the alphabet in the Greek alphabet and it's just a little it's just a little stroke and so Jesus said that every one of those are inspired so that's a that's an important distinction it's not just that the ideas in the Bible are inspired the actual words the grammar where where you begin and end a sentence word order all of those things. And that's why, especially when we're in um, the epistles, in more the didactic teaching of Scripture, that's why it's so important we take it apart word by word. We take apart every sentence, every, every clause, because that's how you treat a book that's inspired. Then we start with the assumption of inerrancy. Inerrancy just simply means that the Bible won't prove false or mistaken. It won't prove to be false. The nature of God implies inerrancy. And that's where it starts. God is true, and so his words must be true, right? God is trustworthy, so his words must be trustworthy. God is without error, and God's words are without error. I think a great illustration is Genesis 1. So many Christians have questioned Genesis 1. Well, it's really a myth, uh, or it's really a, a story of many great ages. What you're saying... When you say that days actually equals millions of years, is that God was too stupid to know how to phrase it in a way that we could understand it. Um, Genesis 1 is crystal clear. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. It's like at kindergarten level. 
And I've told this story before, but I had the glorious experiment of teaching Genesis 1 and 2 to a bunch of second graders. And I did this for a long period of weeks. And by the time they got done, you'd ask them, you know, how long did it take God to create the world? Well, six days. Are there any other options? What's the word options mean? Uh, could they have done it any other way? No. And they had perfect theology because they understood a basic English rendering of Genesis 1. To say that it means something it doesn't say is, an, is to impugn the character of God and to say that he was too dumb to figure it out. He needed an editor. He needed an, an archangel to come say, you know, that's really not clear. Let's, let's scratch this sentence out. No, he's, every word is inerrant. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's without error. What's the basis for inerrancy? The basis for inerrancy is that Scripture is true because God said it. That's, that's the whole basis. And somebody, some might say, well, that's a circular argument. Circular arguments don't apply to God. He is his own authority. Right? Well, why is the Bible true? Because the Bible says it's true. Now, the glorious thing about the Bible is if you read it long enough, it proves itself to be true 10,000 times over. Right? Uh, it proves itself to be true in your life. It proves itself to be true in history. The scripture is true because God said it. We also base inerrancy on the fact that Christ believed in inerrancy. He quoted scripture all the time. How many other sources did he ever quote? Zero. That's why, that's why people said that he teaches as one who has authority. Because he didn't quote anybody else. And if you, this, that would make more sense if you read um, rabbis. And, and by the way, there are Jewish uh, scholastic publications today. And I, I read an article by an unsaved rabbi. It's actually really good on Ezekiel 40 through 48 in my study for, for our Millennium series. And this rabbi was right on in his hermeneutics. But his proof was that he was quoting a bunch of other rabbis. There, there's no authority in that. The authority is the fact that Christ said the Bible is true. And he never once deviated from that. He fought off Satan's temptations using the word of God in very pointed surgical fashion. And then you have the integrity and self-witness of scripture. If the Bible says all scripture is inspired by God, is God breathed, and it's not then the Bible has lied and the Bible now sinks into this spiral of you can't trust anything of it. So that's the basis for inerrancy. How far do we take inerrancy? Inerrancy uh, doesn't exclude symbols. That God uses symbology, he uses figurative language to communicate truth. And that's a, that's a study in and of itself, we'll spend a whole lecture on that. It doesn't exclude that. that if God said that, that something is like something else, or A is as B, then that was the inspired, the inerrant, exact thing that he wanted us to understand. That um, the, the, the picture of four horsemen in Revelation 6, are they literally on horses? Uh, probably Probably not, but the, the symbolism is exactly what God wanted. And so it doesn't exclude that. Inerrancy doesn't imply technical vocabulary. Um, what, what do I mean by that? The Bible speaks of the sun going down. Does the sun actually go down? No, the earth uh, rotates and it looks as if the sun's going down. But the Bible is not a scientific book. Everything the Bible says about science is true, but it's not for the purpose of explaining science. How do you explain uh, thousands of years before the telescope is invented, how do you explain to somebody that the sun isn't actually going down? That that would defeat the purpose. Um, there, there are other examples of non-technical language 
that are completely accurate. Uh, For example, Jesus talked about the smallest seed in the garden as being the mustard seed. That's the smallest seed in the Middle East. The smallest seed in the garden is a chrysanthemum seed. It's smaller than any seed on planet Earth. Nobody knew where the chrysanthemum was where Jesus was preaching. So we don't have to worry about that. And every one of those that that people get all twisted up about, all of them have perfectly good explanations. And they're they're not excuses. They're just um, a, a sensitivity to the culture that was being written to. Inerrancy recognizes the historical setting. Every bit of history in the Bible is accurate. Um, I love biblical archaeology. It's a, it's a fun thing to read. It's an interesting hobby. Um, we never say that archaeology proves the Bible uh, because the Bible doesn't need to be proven, right? Um, Spurgeon is famous for saying the Bible is like a lion. Just let it out of its cage. Um, it doesn't need to be defended, But biblical archaeology, time and time and time again, somebody digs up something and they find out, oh, all this time we've been saying that this part of the Bible is not true and we just dug it up and found out that it is. Uh, For for centuries, people said that King David never existed because there was no archaeological evidence, which, by the way, is what's called an argument from silence, meaning that if you don't know where there's evidence, um, then it must not be true. And then they dug up this huge obelisk with... with, uh, with records of King David and things that he did. It's, it's famous now. I think it's in the British Museum. And it corresponded exactly with some of the accounts in Scripture about David. Exactly. Uh, the Hittites. That's a big one. Uh, all the way until the 1800s, um, atheists and especially evolutionists uh, coming in the mid-1800s said, well, the, the Hittites never existed. And then somebody's shovel struck uh, a rock somewhere and they discovered the Hittites were a, a culture on the level of the Egyptians. Uh, just absolutely huge. And that some of them uh, immigrated maybe uh, part of what we now know as the Chinese culture. And so that... that so we recognize the historical setting. You read history in the Bible and it is accurate. It is more accurate than reading it in a history book because this is written by God. And so um, we, we are very clear on history and scripture. Um, read through the Gospel of Luke and he, he gives all these historical references that are, that are precise and that are totally accurate. We recognize the whole message. The whole message that the Bible is a story. And it, it, it is completely consistent with itself as it goes through um, the story of Scripture. Um, I've read portions of the Koran, which, by the way, 75% of the Koran is lifted, plagiarized from the Old Testament. And the Koran makes no sense. Like, if I was just a publisher trying to publish a book that had a story, I would reject it because it doesn't flow from A to Z. It doesn't have a flow. It's just a bunch of chapters and verses kind of all tagged together in ways that make no sense. But we recognize that the Bible has a message. And that message is that God is bringing a kingdom to earth. That was his original intention in creation, and and now the plan of redemption is that that's still happening. And then we recognize the imperfections of the biblical authors, but the perfection of their writing. Some unbelievers would say, well, I can't accept the writings of Peter as inerrant because we all know that Peter had a big mouth. Yeah, he did. He was a sinner who God superintended to write perfect writings. Absolutely perfect. That's inerrancy. I think I'm going to have to go faster. 
We'll do authority now. Authority is kind of a no-brainer because in inspiration and inerrancy automatically apply imply authority, right? If this is breathed out by God and it is perfect, then it must be authoritative. The only reason really to say that Scripture is not authoritative is because you don't want to be under the authority of the author. That's the only reason to say. So authority kind of falls in line very easily. The dominoes go over easily at that point. Under authority, we want to make very clear that Scripture is superior to the traditions of men. Matthew 15.3, Jesus said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? There's even, uh, in one of the Gospels, um, one of the Gospel writers uses the phrase that Jesus broke the Sabbath. Well, let's be very, very precise. Jesus broke every man-made rule on the Sabbath because he didn't think anything of them. He never broke Sabbath law one time. He kept the spirit of the law, which is interesting because what was he? He he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, He paid taxes, even though he was the one who created the heavens and the earth from which the coin was made that he paid taxes with. So, um, Scripture is superior to the traditions of men. And by the way, you would think... I'm going to deviate on this just for a minute. You would think that, well, that's, you know, we understand that. That's what Catholics believe. Catholics put uh, scripture and church tradition equal. Which, by the way, when you put tradition equal to scripture, you're actually putting tradition over scripture. That's always the case. But this is actually a raging battle in Protestantism now as well. Um, There are those that would say um, that we are what they call biblicists in that we don't recognize what some would call a, an implied authority with things like the writings of John Calvin, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And these are tremendous documents, but they're not authoritative. Um, the, if you have MacArthur and Mayhew's Biblical Doctrine, big giant white book of biblical theology, at the very outset in the preface it says, We are Biblicists. A biblicist in the proper definition is one that recognizes no authority except the authority of the Word of God. Now those who make that charge would say, well, you're, you're dismissing the usefulness of those things. No, we're not. And that's way different than calling it authoritative. Um, we've had families in our church that say we'd like to teach our kids through the Westminster Confession. That's great. It's a tremendous document. Can I circle the ones where they got it wrong? Just so you know. So there's a, there's a number of, of ways we can look at authority, but today the battle raging is over the authority of Scripture. And they would never say it that way. Well, of course we believe in sola scriptura, the, in Scripture alone. But if you're not confessional, if you're not London 1689, if you're not this or that, then you're really missing out on something that God did. No, we're not. Those are great confessions. But to say if you're not confessional that you're missing out on something is, is simply to denigrate the authority of Scripture. So, uh, and, and by the way, that puts all of you in the position of saying, well, I need these grand scholars to tell me what the Bible says because I can't possibly understand it on my own. I never want to give you that impression. I want to give you the impression that the Bible is the Word of God, authoritative, and that you, as the regular Christian, my favorite kind, can just open the Word of God and begin to dig the depths out. One of our professors in in seminary, incidentally the class in which I met Darren Weeb, uh, in, in Greek exegesis, he always said, the Bible is safer in the laps of church members than it ever is in academia. And it's true. 
How many of you have ever spent time thinking we should question the authority of Scripture? You've never done that. You don't have time to do that. So authority is a big deal. Why is authority such a big deal? It's big because it implies what you're going to do with the Word of God. It speaks into your life and it is authoritative in the same way that, that any other human authority is. And if you choose to ignore its authority, then you're ignoring the authority of God and you do so to the peril of your own soul. And so authority is the natural outworking of inspiration and inerrancy. And then infallibility. Just very briefly, infallibility means that the Bible is incapable of being deceptive. It's incapable of teaching deception. Uh, A good way to remember infallibility is that it is unfailable. It won't make you fail. It won't ever make you fail. It won't make you sin. Um, There's a huge contingent of, of believers in Christ that believe that children should not read Song of Solomon because it will lead them into sin. I have a huge problem with believing that one verse in our Bible anywhere will lead somebody into sin. I I can't go with that. Have you read Song of Solomon? A 10-year-old cannot understand it. It's written in flowery language. You ask a 10-year-old, what was Song of Solomon about? Well, it's a couple people in a garden and they're planting vines and stuff. And you're like, yep, that's it. That'll work for now. (laughs) Because it's written such that a child can read it with complete innocence. And an adult can read it and know everything that it's talking about in terms of intimacy and human marriage. So, um, it's, it's infallible. It will never lead you astray. We also have the assumption of progressive revelation. This is very important. This is the idea that God reveals more truth as the revelation of Scripture proceeds. The, the progression of revelation never contradicts what was given previously. It just gives more information and adds to it. The truths revealed earlier don't become any less true, only more clarified. Later revelation does not change the meaning of earlier revelation. This is important for us, and, and you would say, well, that, that sounds obvious. The, the same crew that I've talked about that accuses us sometimes of being biblicists and, and not utilizing confessions and, and so forth the way they think we should, um, they also almost across the board believe in something called New Testament priority, that you read the Bible backwards, that you start in the New Testament, and it tells you what the, ready for this, what the Old Testament now means, not what it used to mean. That when God originally told Abraham, I'm going to give you land, he meant dirt. And when the New Testament applies that now to the church, land has a new meaning. And that is, that is horribly wrong. Um, we, will, we will go to our graves believing to our dying day that the meaning of a text is found in the text itself. That I don't need another scripture text to tell me what it actually means. Now, we use cross-references to help us understand what it means. But when God said, I will give you Eretz, land, it means dirt 100% of the time. And that meaning has never changed. So, when we say progressive revelation, that's, that's important because as you're doing a Bible study... And you're, let's say you're, uh, you're using 10 different cross-references to help you understand a, a concept. It's important to put them in order, in, in Bible book order, because what you received in Genesis about the Holy Spirit is, is way less than what you receive in the Gospel of John about the Holy Spirit. And so you build on it. Speaking of cross-reference, that's our next concept. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
or cross-references. One or more scripture passages help interpret the right meaning in another text. And this is, this is usually important. There, there is so much debate. This is an example. Did I put this in there? No. Well, you'll get the notes and you have it all. There's so much debate over John 3, 5. John 3, 5 is where Jesus says that you must be born of water and of the Spirit. And I've heard them all. I think the funniest one is that you, that, that to be saved, first you must be born. And then you must be born again. Well, that's not a requirement. I mean, how many people have ever said, uh-oh, I'd better be born? Nobody's ever said that. Uh, unless you're baby in the womb and it's time. Okay, it's time to be born. No. A simple cross-reference check to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, helps us understand that Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, the greatest teacher in Israel at that time, was using a a symbol that Nicodemus would have known from Ezekiel 36, that water is indicative of spiritual cleansing. That you're cleansed by um, with repentance and by the Spirit. Um, Titus 3.5 even says this, that we're, we're washed and we're regenerated. So it's a common um, use of that symbol. It's not something Jesus just made up. It's already found in Scripture. And this is a little bit more ambiguous. We also believe in what's called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith says that there is one unified, consistent, harmonious system of faith or belief in the Bible. That no one point, when correctly understood, will contradict something else. And that's very important because um, the Apostle Paul says that uh, you are saved by faith and not by works. And James says you're saved by works and not just your faith. And you go, oh no, the Bible contradicted itself. If you look at the context, you understand they fit together perfectly and accurately. It is unified, it is consistent. Um, so when anybody says, uh, well, there's lots of contradictions in the Bible, what's your response? Well, show me one. And they don't usually have any. And if they do, they're, they're made up. Well, the Gospels are all different. They are. There are four different versions of the same story, all told from different angles, some adding more detail and some less. That's no different than any other uh, same version of, this, of, of, of one story. We operate under the assumption of singularity of meaning. Any one text has one interpretation. One and only one. It has one proper meaning, not two, not three. Now, after proper interpretation, there are endless implications and applications. And let me explain the difference. Because you might say, well, that sounds like there's lots of different meanings. David picked up five stones in in a brook. And uh, he fought Goliath with one of those. Made a really good shot. If you read some commentaries on David's battle with Goliath, you will find men who teach that David's five stones are five actual stones, plus they stand for purity, integrity, wisdom, courage, and righteousness. Okay, what's the question you ask? Show me how you got there. Show me how you got there, besides you just making that up. Because there are symbols in the Bible. What, was, what, what were the stones of David symbolic of? They were symbolic of a weapon to kill a giant. That's it. There is one meaning for the stones. They were a weapon. David used one, had four left over. So, 
when something comes from the imagination of the interpreter, then that's that's um, what that that's that's not okay. Uh, when I was in seminary and I was on the faculty there for a bit of time. I got to sit in on a meeting with a guest lecturer, and, and to their credit, seminary doesn't just invite lecturers that agree with everything they believe in. They invite people from other, other uh, wonderful believers who have a different viewpoint of things. And so this particular um, uh, commentator is a brilliant man, but his, his view of Job is that many things in Job are symbolic, including the Leviathan and the behemoth, that those are, those are symbols. And so somebody asked him the question, well, what does the behemoth in Job mean? And he went into this big... You know, well, it's symbolic of Satan's work, this and that and this and that. And the simple question was, how did you arrive at that? Silence. Well, it just seems to make sense. You know, a five-year-old can say that. It seems to make sense. Singularity of meaning. So what is it you're trying to do when you're studying the word? You're trying to find that meaning. That's your number one goal. What does this mean? And then we operate under the historical grammatical assumption the history of scripture is real, it's meaningful in interpretation. Grammar is real, it's meaningful in interpretation. Jesus demonstrated both of those beliefs. He never reinterpreted historical biblical events, and he said that the very smallest letter is part of the inspired scripture given by God. Now, Jesus did add to revelation. He added to the word of God. He said... In Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why is Jesus allowed to add to the word of God? What is his nickname in John 1? The word of God. So he's the only person who can add to it and praise the Lord that he has. Okay, let's do this next part a little faster. Why study the Bible? I've already talked about this a bit. It's a necessary complement to your Bible reading. Bible reading alone won't advance your knowledge as deeply as in-depth study. Um, Read 176 reasons in Psalm 119. That would be easy. And this is a big one for me. I I want more and more people to be able to present a good, solid Bible study lesson to to adults or to children. Uh, For you ladies... You know how difficult it is in women's ministry for us to find women who can exposit the scriptures? It's just almost impossible. And and about half the time when we've invited women to come and speak, about half the time there are regrets because basic rules of hermeneutics are violated in the name of a slick presentation. So that's, that's so important. Um, for men, there's a void of men who can rightly handle the Word of God. I, I want a church filled with men who can handle the Word of God. Can you imagine uh, if, if, if men in our church had a small group of even six or eight other guys that are inviting from work or inviting from their neighborhood to say, uh, let's walk through a book of the Bible together? That's phenomenal. It also helps us as a church avoid dependence on curriculum. Um, now, we use curriculum for our children, but it's, it's very well chosen. Um, almost all, like for For example, uh, every summer, what do you see in the yard of every church in town? VBS, that's right. Uh, VBS stands for Very Bad Studies. (laughs) Just almost across the board, terrible. Because they're written by poorly trained authors who have a degree in writing, not a degree in theology. 
And so they're, they're just awful. And then it also helps you to be like the Bereans of Acts 17.11, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I never want to ask you to take my word for it because I'm wearing a, a tie and I, I open a big Bible with a nice leather cover. Go home and study everything I've said for yourself. Preferably before you tell me you disagree with me. It also accelerates your maturity, your love for Christ, and your obedience. I want to talk a little bit about preparation, and then we'll, be, we'll just do a couple of things, uh, little business things real quick. Uh, preparation. Establish a place and a time to study. And take it from me, larger chunks of time less frequently are better than smaller chunks of time more frequently. Because you, you kind of have to get your mind in the groove. Uh, you, I, I don't like to study in anything less than three-hour increments for me. I just uh, Less than that is almost useless to me. So it's better to have one large stung, uh, uh, chunk of time. Um, gather some basic materials. And when you get the notes here, there's going to be some resources, some web-based materials, BibleGateway.com, StudyLight.org. Those are, those are some good ones. Um, I'm sorry you don't have the notes here. We'll, we'll go back over this. Uh, you, you need a study Bible. And I would encourage you to get more than one. An ESV study Bible, a MacArthur study Bible, um, uh, even the NIV study Bible. I'm not a fan of the NIV, but the study Bible is pretty good. So those are, those are useful. Those are helpful. Um, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, edited by Walvoord and Zuck. It is the greatest two-volume commentary on every book of the Bible that you can buy. And it's like 35 bucks for the, for the set. Um, just amazing. Uh, some sort of Bible atlas. Uh, to be fair, there's a ton online. So you know, if you just Google where is Bethsaida, you're going to get maps pop up. So um, that's not that hard. A Bible dictionary. That's helpful. It gives you catch-all explanations for many things from word meaning to biographical information. Um, a Bible handbook, that's more about cultural information and things to help you um, that way. And then I, I'm, I'm fearful to mention this word because this is where we tend to run to immediately and, and lean on these as a crutch, but commentaries. And I'll, I'll say this right now, commentaries are the last thing you do in your Bible study method and, and don't open them because they, they rip away all your creativity. Uh, for example, if I said, I want you to think of a three of your favorite colors right now, you can be creative. But if I say, think of red, white, and blue, boop, that's done. It's in your brain. And so commentaries are, are very useful, but only in the right order. Interlinear texts which helps with language barriers. That's a, that's a Bible or, or an online program that, that gives you three or four different English translations together. That helps you compare them. <clears throat> and I'll give you some other, uh, some other materials together. They'll, you'll get them in the notes. You can just look at it together. But uh, those are some good ones to start with. But if you're going to start with anything, get a study Bible or two. Um, I, I'm amazed at how many people will spend $1,300 on a new iPhone every year and they have one Bible that their grandmother gave them that's falling apart and no other Bible study materials. Proverbs 23.23 says, Buy truth. Now, it also says, and do not sell it. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> because somebody has to be selling it for you to buy it, right? But buy truth. So, so invest in this. But have a place and the time to study. Now, this is we get to a little bit of business here. And I'm going to leave this slide up uh, even, as, even after we're done. If you're doing BTI for credit, 
and you're going to do the Bible study assignments. And we break these down into little assignments as we go, and Jay will get those to you. These are the passages I'm asking you to choose from. There's five different ones, and they're, they're chosen with great specificity because they include all the elements that we're going to talk about, including dealing with symbolic language and, and how to do that. So, you can start reading through those. They're all, I believe every one of them, four verses. So, it's not, they're, they're, they're easy little chunks. Um, I will, later on, give you some recommended commentaries for these, but don't look at them yet. Look at the passage. Look at the look at the uh, at, at what the actual Bible itself says. So I'm going to stop right there. Next time, what we're going to do is we'll finish up some of the some of the um, assignment stuff. What we're going to do, and then we're going to start talking about establishing context because that's that's the first and foremost thing you must do. Um, you don't understand the verse just by reading the verse. You understand the verse by knowing the entire book that it's in and where that sits and what it what it means. So, we're going to stop there. I know we did a lot today. Does anybody have any questions about the content, especially the assumptions or the presuppositions? Any any questions on those? Steve? Yes? Um, pros, cons for like Strong's exhaustive concordance using Hebrew or Greek interpretations? Yeah, so Strong's is okay. Um, I mean, it's really old and one of the fallacies we're going to explore is that what people tend to do is they look up a word. Strong's is a, is a, a reference tool that lets you use an English Bible to find the Greek word equivalent or the Hebrew word equivalent. And it, it's okay, but um, it doesn't help you avoid the tendency to look at ten possible definitions used in twelve different uh, uh, verbal forms and to just pick the one that's the juiciest. It doesn't work that way. Right? Um, I can't if I say I am wearing a bow tie, which by the way you will never catch me in a bow tie, that's just me. If I say I am wearing a bow tie, you don't get to say I think he really means a bow tie because it's spelled the same, and that means when you wear that tie, you have to bow all the time. Or I think he's wearing a bow tie, like a bow that the violinist uses, and it's a big stick across his thing. So that's the same thing. That's what you're doing to the Bible when you just pick a meaning that you think is the juiciest and the most exciting. And um, uh, the, the worst one ever, and this happens every week somewhere in the world um, that the Greek word for power is dunamis and we get the word dynamite from that and that's how powerful that is. That's what's called a, an, a, uh, an anachronistic error when that was written dynamite wasn't invented. No, Paul wasn't thinking of dynamite. It's just a word that means power. Um, so, Strong's is okay but um, I'll give you some better tools. Just when you look up word meanings don't think that you know what the text means. Um, that's, a, that's a piece of the pie, definitely. And I do it every week, and you, you hear me do it, but that's a piece of the pie. That's not the entire interpretation of a text, and we would say that is the weakest interpretation. Um, that, that's the, the smallest piece of the pie. So all that is to say, Strong's is good. We'll give you some better ideas, too. Yes, Ed. And then, yeah, I, and then, yeah. I just want to make a comment. that I appreciate the fact that you study Scripture the way you do and that you preach the way you do. I grew up in, in traditional where... Past, you know, the pastor preached on experiential things in his life, or he, he thought about pain. So he looked up all the words in the scripture about pain and preached on pain. And when I got here, uh, 
it, it was such a change to me because you you didn't seldom do that. You never did that. And uh, I just, I get more comment than anything. I just appreciate the approach that you take because when I leave here, my heart is to talk to my wife all the way home about what, what God's Word says. Yeah, praise the Lord. more effectively study it together as a married couple than... Wow, you know, the pastor had experiences. And the worst, worst <laughs> yet, the Lord impressed on me this morning, thus and so, dot, dot, dot. You know what that means? A message on that. That means I can't keep a calendar. Yeah. And I can't manage my it's time. That's so true. Yeah. Um, the authority of Scripture, but also your, the way you approach it, um, is something that I personally, and I think many of us are here because of of that we can trust what you say because of how you well praise the Lord for that and you'll, you you hear me use a word all the time it's not one we use in, in, in a positive context usually that's the word argument that every every sermon every Bible study you do presents an argument you're trying to prove a case and it's not right to just say this is true without proving that case to the best of your ability Andy I think you had, did you have a question just a quick um, comment or question the, all the different uh, references that you just offered up for us uh, for places, you know, commentaries and things like that. Yes. Is that in the notes? That we That's in the notes. I'm reading exactly from what uh, you're going to get from Jay. If you don't get that from Jay sometime this week, um, send them, everybody send them an email. No, don't do that. I'll, <laughs> I'll text him that you need this. We're trying to decide whether to just make it accessible online or just email it to all of you. Um, usually, I don't like to hand out notes. Um, it's kind of like showing the end of a movie before you get there. Um, but in this case, I want you to have all that information. So, yes, it, it will be there. So, yeah, Jimmy. If you scroll to the bottom of the DC section, it has like archived modules. Yes. And you can get to the archived module for module 7 and get the Oh, so you can cheat and get it now. Yes. Okay. It's on there. not cheating. So, say, say that again. Do, do, do that in slower fashion. You just have to use a proper hermeneutic. Yes. So, go down to BTI. If you go to the BTI section on GCOB and you scroll down to the, uh, the archived modules, it says module 7 2020. You click on that, it gives you all the previous uh, MP3 files, but it can also give you download notes. Terrific. You click on download notes, and I was looking at it while he was talking. All right. That's good. Yeah, Jill. Before we go in. I wish there were, but no, they're not. I liked it the first time. It was inspired. No, it wasn't inspired. Oh, no. Okay, we're, we're, one more question. Yes. Okay. Would I be accurate in, in uh, saying that, like, three other things? Okay, studying the Bible, uh, in, you know, uh, very, uh, <laughs> okay, studying the Bible, which is what you're talking about all this morning, is important. But then I have three others, like conditions of, um, like, humility. So um, God is above. We're, he's God. We're not. Yeah. Because we get that into our head and heart, I, you know, then we're not constantly trying to put our interpretations in there. And then uh, faith. I mean, if you don't really have the faith, you're going to say, well, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. Something else. So working on faith, humility, and being attuned to the Holy Spirit, who I think is 
Holy Spirit helps us understand probably more than anything. Yeah, the, the first two I'll, I, I definitely like. I would have trouble defining what it means to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Uh, okay, so yeah. what, what, I would, what I would define that as is that I approach studying the Bible with prayer and I assume the doctrine of illumination that as a believer with the Holy Spirit already that he's going to help me. So that I, I would just change that to prayer because okay. when, when I hear phrases like in tune with the Holy Spirit, I don't know what that means. So and that's just because I'm of median intelligence, but I agree with all of that. We are totally out of time. So Lord bless you all. We'll see you in just a few minutes.